Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia Baker-Whitelaw and here is my guest host, Stefan Allen. Hello. So this week we are talking about Steven Spielberg's 1993 blockbuster Jurassic Park, a film that needs no introduction. However, my co-host does. For listeners who did not hear the recent update um, and are wondering where is Morgan, the answer is she is on medical leave at the moment. She has long COVID, so we decided to take a few months break from the kind of weekly, bi-weekly recording schedule. She will still be doing some podcasts on the Patreon, and we obviously also have like a big backlog of Patreon episodes if you have not listened to those. But in the interim, I will be joined every two weeks by Stefan and by Claire Biddles. She is kind of going to be more specialising in the indies and dramas, and I think Stefan and I will probably be doing more in the kind of blockbuster entertainment realm, but who's to say? But Stefan is a longtime friend of mine, and he is a stand-up comedian who performs in both Welsh and English. Uh, hello, Stefan. Hello, hello. Very excited. I love this podcast. And hopefully the podcast will love you. Um, so both of us have a kind of similar-ish relationship to Jurassic Park in that we both watched it for the first time as adults. Yes. So I grew up speaking Welsh, so I was mostly watching Welsh stuff as a kid, which means I wasn't really much of a cinema person very young. I would see Disney films, you know, I because I didn't really speak English I sort of could follow it to a certain extent growing up in the UK, but I realise this is like a family film, but even something like Jurassic Park would probably have been beyond me, and certainly at the time that it came out. So I remember it being huge, everyone was obsessed with it in school, but I hadn't seen it and didn't see it until I think lockdown. Yeah, I mean, as I've kind of mentioned on the podcast before, I also did not see very many films as a child because we did not have a television and we're not really regular cinema goers. So both of us have uh, kind of launched into a love of film as adults. But yeah, are you much of a Steven Spielberg fan? Have you seen a lot of his movies or anything like that? I mean, very patchy, but I've loved everything I've seen of his. So E.T. was one I checked out. Desperate to see Jaws. I've never seen Jaws. So good. It's a banger. Yeah. I watched all the Indiana Joneses, which I wasn't that wild about actually i mean very impressively directed i think my issues went with the directing but i suspect maybe that's something you need to get into as a kid to really love yeah i think i saw those as like a young teenager and to me they're kind of like the pinnacle or i guess not even the pinnacle because a venn diagram doesn't have a pinnacle but they're like the <laughs> the ultimate venn diagram crossover between like awesome movies and really offensive <laughs> They're like, yes. <laughs> like some of them are like really racist. Some of them are really sexist. The backstory for like the female lead in the first one is that like Spielberg and George Lucas both wanted her to be like 13 years old when Indiana Jones hooked up with her. It's like disgusting. So, you know, oh my much, God. much to ignore in those films. And I feel like they probably shouldn't be making another one with um, Harrison Ford at the age of 110. But yeah. <laughs> One of the things I was thinking about when I was kind of writing up our planning document for this is something Morgan pointed out from Spielberg's most recent film, The Fablemans, which is the kind of semi-autobiographical film. And it's about his evolution as a filmmaker, like in his childhood. And apparently his defining moment of watching a film for the first time, or rather the character that is his stand-in in that film, is watching a movie with like this really big 
disaster sequence where it's really scary. So a lot of movies that are about filmmakers and about the love of film are, oh, the magic of cinema and kind of sentimentalizing it. And Spielberg's own personal view was like the power of being absolutely fucking terrified, both like emotionally and by special effects, which is the dominant force in all of his blockbusters. Because his breakout movie obviously is Jaws, which is all about scaring the shit out of the audience and is very special effects based in the, the main sequences anyway. And then throughout all of his blockbuster movies, he kind of has this reputation now. It's like people are like, oh, he's this guy who makes loads of family films and he's this nostalgia figure. But all of his big films, aside from Indiana Jones, you know, Close Encounters and E.T. and that sort of thing, he does have like elements of horror in all of those movies, which is obviously the case for Jurassic Park. And kind of by the time this movie came out in 1993, he was the kind of top figure in Hollywood as a director and producer but he was always interspersing those big entertainment films with serious dramas so this was sort of overlapping with his work on Schindler's List so he was kind of sandwiching Schindler's List in between this and Hook which is a wild filmography (laughs) (laughs) yeah it is definitely horror isn't it I mean even though the first time I watched this film was only quite recently I rewatched it for the podcast and I think what it is, is it's not just horror. It's not a pure horror experience. It is also delivering lots of other pleasures. And I think when you're not watching it, those are the pleasures you remember. You remember the philosophy. You remember the action adventure. You remember, you know, Sam Neill being a dad to two lovely children. And you forget just how much of it... But And not just the obvious horror of, oh no, a dinosaur is coming. Watching it this time, I felt like a lot of the early setup of the film reminds me of something like Black Mirror, where it's, look at this wonderful technology, and you're being invited to imagine how all of this is going to go wrong. Yeah, I think something you and Steven Spielberg have in common, which is probably not very much, (laughs) but something you, you, you guys have in common. Stefan is a big fan of stuff like Goosebumps, and that you and Spielberg both understand that what kids really love to do is be scared, but kind of be scared in a safe environment. And like, I think a lot of children's media now, one of the big differences between now and like 30 years ago is there's a real kind of avoidance of putting traumatic or fucked up content and stuff that children are watching. So like, it's kind of different from being like, oh, this is inappropriate for children. It's simply like removing fear, but children love to be scared. And children's books are often really scary. And when this, you're literally having a scenario where it's like, you've got these like adorable little child actors being terrified by a big old monster. (laughs) It's, It's amazing. There's the point where the lawyer just runs from the car and is so driven by self-preservation that he has no concern for the children he's leaving behind in the cars. And the older child is so traumatised by this. Both in the moment and later to Sam Neill, she says, you know, he left us. And, you know, that cuts so much deeper than the scares of a, a, a massive dinosaur. The fear of abandonment is a huge thing for children. It's also definitely a real child of divorce vibe, which was a strong theme in this era of American cinema and also kind of a formative thing for Spielberg, I think. Interesting. Yeah, it is. I'd forgotten that these children, the reason they're here is because their parents are getting divorced. So their granddad's looking after them. Yeah, it's one of those sort of convenient adventure movie premises where like they found an excuse for kids to be somewhere like without their parents. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> They're like, oh, leave it to like nice old grandfather in his totally safe theme park full of like murderous creatures. <laughs> it's really efficient storytelling as well, though, isn't it? Because as well as this being an excuse to give Sam Neill some children that aren't his own, 
it also gives Richard Attenborough's character real stakes. You know, he's it's not just a handful of scientists whose lives are at stake, but his own grandchildren. So they're sort of providing two different levels of jeopardy to different characters. Yeah, when I was kind of looking into the adaptation process from Michael Crichton's book, apparently one of the big things they changed is that in the book he is not this kind of cuddly figure, he's this mad scientist megalomaniac, and they were like, no, we need to have this sort of nicer, avuncular person, which works a lot better, I think, for the film. Looking at Richard Attenborough in this film, to me it brings to mind other sort of similar characters. I was trying to think who's similar. So I I came up with like a trilogy of films you could watch, which is Jurassic Park, Ex Machina, and Glass Onion as films (laughs) (laughs) featuring people who gain access to an incredible level of technology, but are absolutely irresponsible with it and are just nowhere near clever enough to oversee something this dangerous and risky. And it's interesting that in the other two, you know, my mind goes to, you know, Ex Machina and Glass Onion are both sort of about, you know, douchey tech bros. They're very charismatic characters, but they're not particularly likable, I think. Whereas Richard Attenborough's character, I think we love him. I think we love this lovely man who really loves dinosaurs. Yeah, which just, like, makes it even more tense, because it's like, you know, you look at this logistically, and, like, literally every element, of course, of the entire Jurassic Park concept is like, why are you doing this? (laughs) Well, so something I'd completely forgotten since watching this the first time is that someone dies right at the start of the film. People keep talking about, ooh, what if something goes wrong? And I think it's so easy to forget that things were already going wrong. This was not a safe thing to be doing. You don't need the power to go down. You don't need them to start breeding. People were already dying just loading things off the crate. Which is literally true of, like, the Olympics or the Football World Cup. Whenever someone has to build a really big stadium for something, it's always just like, yeah, this is extremely true to life. And I think also, like, that's clearly something Michael Crichton was obsessed with because for those who kind of don't know obviously this is kind of his most famous thing but by this point by like the 90s he was already a massive best-selling author and I would say he's probably second only to Stephen King in terms of writers whose work just is continually adapted and made into these huge movies so like the Andromeda Strain, Westworld, Coma, Sphere. He also created the TV show ER which I did not know until I was like looking up his career. He is basically mostly a sci-fi author and he is obsessed with disasters and they're often kind of about the collapse of a complicated system or a disaster kind of created by some kind of scientific experiment. So this book was published in 1990 and then the film rights sold for one and a half million dollars and then Crichton was then given another half million dollars to adapt the screenplay and then as always happens for blockbusters they like brought in a bunch of other people to kind of do rewrites so one of the big rewrites I heard about was that the kind of exposition sequence where that little cartoon guy explains all of the premise was inserted by someone else. And it's like, yeah, that is incredibly elegant, well-executed exposition because we do not need any further explanations. But yeah, that is his whole vibe is these big blockbuster-friendly, very American style of disasters, I think. Yeah, I've got a theory that one of the magical ingredients in this film is that you take a book written by the world's greatest cynic and get the world's greatest optimist to direct the film. That is such a good point. 
<laughs> yeah, Spielberg. It's like Spielberg where it's like whenever he does something dark, everyone's like, that's quite surprising. It's like, no, his work's always quite dark. But yeah, he is... Like, he and James Cameron both really understand what people want and understand the building blocks of making mainstream entertainment in a really kind of viscerally emotional emotional way but Steven Spielberg seems like a really nice person and James Cameron seems like a monster (laughs) (laughs) so to talk about the cast for a minute main cast obviously Sam Neill Laura Dern Jeff Goldblum at this point all kind of celebrated indie movie actors and also I find it quite interesting that there's not really an action role in this unlike most blockbusters and kind of disaster movies it's instead of having like oh here's a nerd to do the exposition most of the main characters are scientists and technicians but Steph you kind of listened to some podcasts and stuff and you heard about some weird casting processes behind the scenes Yes, I went real deep. I love podcasts anyway. They really suit my job as a stand-up, you know, you're constantly moving about, so it's a great medium. So, I I'm going to forget what I got from each podcast, but I think I got this from the What Went Wrong podcast episode on Jurassic Park. Yeah, so Goldblum's role, Jim Carrey auditioned for it. And I don't think he was seriously considered apparently, you know, they wanted Jeff Goldblum for the role. Sandra Bullock was considered for Lorna Dern's role. I don't know enough to know how big Bullock would have been at the time. Helen Hunt was considered for that role as well. Helen Hunt was pretty big at this point, and I can kind of see why they wanted her. But I think it is interesting that it feels like an interesting choice not to go with big stars. Almost the opposite of Jurassic World, right? You know, Chris Pratt's casting in Jurassic World feels like it's hot on the heels of Guardians of the Galaxy, and that it's, you know, combined big star with big IP. Whereas in this film, this IP didn't exist and none of the people are big stars. So it's probably just Crichton and Spielberg. Like those are the selling points, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, and the dinosaurs, like the crucial thing about a movie like this is like, if you've got really good dinosaurs, it doesn't really matter what the actors are like, but um, in terms of marketing anyway, but in terms of the quality of the film, you want good actors and Spielberg is a really actor focused director including quite minor roles like he wants to find people who are going to give really good individual performances yeah this is what he focuses on and kind of the difference between that and Jurassic World is that they literally are going for who is a really famous marketable star and I think like audiences now really recognize that because there's so much backlash against Chris Pratt because he is giving nothing (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's it. it can be very annoying when there's a a star that is bankable on paper but that is not particularly inspiring to you and 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 for it to be presented as a selling point i suppose whereas here i mean i watched this film very recently but rewatching it i was surprised all over again that bd wong is in this sam jackson is in this you can go quite far down the cast list and you're still finding just amazing, fascinating actors in these. Yeah, I mean, apparently Spielberg swapped around the ages of the two kids because he specifically wanted to work with Joseph Mazzello, who is the child actor who plays the little boy, who I guess must have been like seven or something. And he was like, oh, this is like an excellent child actor. I really want to work with him. And he wasn't even like a famous child actor. He had been in other films but like this was his breakout role. So Spielberg was like thinking so much about like each individual performance that he was changing roles around so he could get the correct seven-year-olds. <laughs> yes, it is fascinating that he has such attention to detail with casting. And that makes sense, I suppose. That's why his films are like they are. There's a character called Lex. Is that the girl? Is that the yeah, older girl? Yeah, it's Okay, so apparently he considered Christina Ricci for that role. Hmm. Which again, 
you know, I think history has proved that that would have been good casting. But yeah, I mean, at this point, it's like Laura Dern was like a David Lynch actor. You know, she was known for like Blue Velvet, Wild at Heart, which is a, a Nick Cage movie. And then... Sam Neill at this point, I guess, already middle-aged, but like his film, I'm fascinated by Sam Neill's filmography because he is so prolific and he has done basically every single kind of movie, but he's been around for so long that you kind of, I think most audiences don't know that he was incredibly hot when he was young. So mm. <laughs> if you go back to like the 80s and this, like kind of that early part of his career, he's he did like a precursor to the Bond franchise, like obviously not chronologically oh. before the Bond films came out because that would have been too long ago, but like the spy novels that came before James Bond, basically. So he is like a hot spy. And then by this point, obviously, Sam Neill has always been a very handsome man. But like, at this point, he's like, I'm a curmudgeonly middle-aged dinosaur expert. (laughs) I think there is a certain energy to someone who is hot when they were young, who hit middle age, but still walk with the confidence of someone hot. Oh, yes. (laughs) Because Sam Neill is incredibly fanciable and attractive in this film. Yeah, I mean, the trio of main characters is so good. Like I said, I love that it's kind of the atypical nerd matchup, and you've got, like, Jeff Goldblum, who is basically the freak, who's just trying to disrupt yeah. everyone. It's a very fun role. Um, Jeff Goldblum in real life, kind of dubious. But as a performer, we all love him. Uh, great actor. <laughs> very fun in this. But yeah, like, one interesting thing I was reading when I was preparing for this is there was an article in the blog Brightwall Dark Room, which we will link to in the show notes, that's kind of talking about the gendered aspects of the world building here, because obviously, famously, all of the dinosaurs are female or meant to be female uh, <laughs> in, this, in this place. And also the cast is very male-dominated, which is like... Not unusual for a kind of blockbuster movie, but it adds this element to the idea of men trying to control nature and female dinosaurs, and also kind of the central interpersonal conflict between the two top leads are that Laura Darren's character wants kids, and Sam Neill's character, who is her kind of at least 10 years older boyfriend, doesn't want kids. And this conflict is kind of settled by them having to look after these two children in a disaster situation and kind of her showing her nurturing side and him showing his protective side and that sort of thing. And it's executed in a way that like definitely isn't sexist and works really well, unlike in the Jurassic World movies, which are very sexist. But also, as this article kind of points out, that's quite unusual for Spielberg, who like very rarely has female protagonists. Yeah, that's a good point, isn't it? Yeah, that is interesting. Because I find... The you know there's a couple of moments of kind of lampshaded sexism in the film which don't work that brilliantly for me. I think the actors do really really well with what they have, so I think it gets away with it. But I always find it difficult when a film is massively male dominated, but then tries to have a sort of moment of going ah sexism is wrong though. It's I don't know. It always feels a bit. I don't know if I trust the authorial voice of this film to have an interesting position on the inclusion of women, given how few there are in the cast. I think it's one of those things where the stuff that they're seeing explicitly on the surface is kind of silly and shallow, and then the underlying themes are a lot meatier because this whole thing is like, as I said, this this article and this blog that I will link to, it's kind of saying basically the whole thing is about reproductive control one of the very earliest things they say about the theme park is no unauthorized breeding. Mm. And then you've got this kind of down home, like Americana divorce slash child conflict in the center. But then in the background, it's like, 
you can't stop what these female dinosaurs have to do. And individual characters are gendering the dinosaurs in different ways because you've got Alan Grant, the, the Samuel character, referring to the T-Rex as he because he's mm. he's like masculinizing the scary dinosaurs. And then they're referring to like the nice gentle dinosaurs as she because in their minds, they're like the really dangerous ones can't be men. And it's like, they're all female dinosaurs in yeah. as much as that means anything for like a lizard. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that is a really good point, actually. And you're right that, that Lorna Dern has that moment of, I think this is right, isn't it? When they're being told that the dinosaurs are denied the the scientific process that allows an embryo to become male. I think it's her that sort of raises an eyebrow at that, isn't, isn't it? Sort of going, yeah. Huh. And then we have Dennis Nedry's plot, which is that he's trying to steal a load of embryos. Like, if you tried to mislead someone by saying, oh, yeah, I just watched a film where uh, about a man trying to steal a bunch of embryos, you know, <laughs> I don't think your mind jumps to Jurassic Park. In this, like, ridiculously over-the-top role. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's brilliant in this. He's so funny. How would you say this lines up with other disaster movies you've seen? Hmm. It feels like it doesn't go that hard into disaster. There's always other stuff going on at the same time. I feel like most disaster movies don't have a scene where we sort of cut to, you know, Richard Attenborough and Laura Dern having dinner and her chastising him for allowing this to happen. You know, there are these moments of quietness that I don't feel like we get in... Oh, help. Examples of other disaster movies. Why have I gone blind? <laughs> um, no, I've forgotten every disaster movie I've ever seen. I mean, the ones that like I think of it is like Godzilla is obviously like the yes. direct influence. Yeah. I mean, this is the problem of me not having seen many classic movies. I, my mind went to Cloverfield. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Cloverfield is, you know, Godzilla. <laughs> yeah. So I suppose I've seen Godzilla yeah. in a way. Okay, I think I want to compare this to Titanic, an action movie where sort of all of the quiet moments are in the first chunk of the film and then once things go wrong they just go disastrously wrong like it's it's everyone running about it's trying to get stuff done whereas this film feels like it still has moments of calm and quietness there's the scene where the two children are you know having cake and jelly really quite late in the film you know there are still these moments of calm there's a lot of contrast i think i feel like every scene contrasts with the previous one in countless different ways you know we bounce from outside to inside from comfort to discomfort uh from terror and disaster to relative safety oh that's such a good one for the kind of spielberg and cameron like titans of american blockbuster because i hadn't thought about it that way but that is like the perfect illustration of their different vibes because cameron his whole thing is escalation. Like he just wants things to be colossally explosive and aggressive. Not necessarily in a bad way. Like obviously I fucking hate Avatar, but like so many of his movies are amazing. He's like the thinking man's Michael Bay. You know, he, he wants yeah. it to be like a huge yeah. catastrophe. And Spielberg is like, none of this is going to work unless you sentimentalize it and kind of root it in characters. And obviously like James Cameron movies, the best ones have amazing characters too, but they're kind of a lot simpler and tropier i think because while obviously this is kind of a tropey film the characters are pretty individual and i do think it's interesting that other movies that are transparently trying to be like jurassic park don't get that i mean we shouldn't talk too much about the jurassic world movies like maybe we should talk a bit about the kind of franchise at the end but the jurassic world movies are just like so 
thoughtless in terms of the way they construct the main characters because it's this sort of regressive matchup between this tough guy action hero man and this uptight feminine business lady who needs to be softened or whatever and it's just like yeah (laughs) yeah well i and i think a lot of it is that a lot of these characters are two tropes at once so jeff goldblum is both a sort of you know you can imagine a harrison ford version of this character i think you know johan solo but also he is a scientist you know he gets the famous line of spending so much time wondering whether you could he is a philosopher. He gets lots of little moments. You know, he has the life finds a way line. So, you know, he he performs double duty. He can be the wise, cracking, sarcastic, sexy rock and roll star, and he can be the thoughtful philosopher. You know, I've already talked about Richard Attenborough being both. You know, he's an antagonist in a sense. You know, he is the person that is going to lead to death and destruction on this scale. And also, you know, he isn't... This is not a good person. This is not a nice person. No, I mean, when someone dies, he's like, we need to figure out a way to continue making the theme park. (laughs) Yeah. The note at the end, you know, he looks wistfully at the theme park. He is devastated, not that people have died, but that his idea has failed. He absolutely does work as an antagonist. It's just that he also works as... You know, this incredibly likable, childlike man who has never lost his sense of wonder. So because he is both those things, that makes that makes the character more interesting. It makes the film more flexible. It gives you a lot more choices for what you can do with these characters. And I feel like all of the characters are like that. You know, uh, Lex in this is both, you know, traumatized kid uh, who's, you know, because she's the older child, it feels like she's the one with a bit more responsibility she's the one telling her little brother to knock it off when he clowns around but also you know she's a teenager who spends all her time in her room on the internet i mean obviously like like it's it's funny when she calls herself a hacker like that feels like such a 90s take on what it means for a teenager to be locked up with a computer you know it gives her maybe this is is a slightly clunkier example than the others but it means that she can be going through system files at the end looking for the right file yeah i think like one of the things that marks both Spielberg and Cameron's success is all of their kind of big blockbuster movies are just rooted in really old recycled ideas but modernized in a way that really works and kind of collect stuff that are already provably popular which also is like why they're getting given all this money budgetarily obviously they will go to a meeting and be like here's a bunch of stuff that a Hollywood executive is going to find non-threatening and marketable (laughs) but like not in a bad way because obviously we are currently in a film landscape where everything is really recycled and none of those ideas are being remixed in an interesting way. But with this, he's kind of working with several different ideas which have this long literary and cinematic tradition in the kind of Western canon. So you've got like dinosaur movies, obviously everyone fucking loves dinosaurs, like all children go through dinosaur phase. The marketing budget for this is famously gargantuan. It was like $65 million, which was the same budget as the film, I think. Like they they had like a blitz of like video games and toys and food and blah, 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 blah. But like you have dinosaur movies going back to like the very earliest era of cinema. Like The Lost World in 1925 was the first kind of dinosaur blockbuster. And you can still watch it today and be like, yeah, this is really fun. Like obviously it's all this kind of like slightly clunky looking animatronic stuff, but it looks really cool (laughs) you know it's fun because dinosaurs are intrinsically fun but kind of on a thematic level you've got this like man versus nature thing 
which is rooted in the 19th century novels that Morgan and I often talk about, like, for this type of film, which kind of form the, I guess, like, psychic cultural memory of what people are looking for in these stories. So, like, I've never read The Island of Dr. Moreau or watched any of those movies. It's an H.G. Wells novel that's about, like, a mad scientist who makes all these human-animal hybrids on an island, and it's kind of a horror story. But you also have stuff like Godzilla and King Kong, which are kind of man versus nature, and also in King Kong's case is about colonization. So you've got like this rich white guy scientist who's gone to this beautiful island and colonized it and filled it up with his creatures and it's going to turn into a huge disaster because he's not thinking about the repercussions. Yes. Yeah. I want to talk about repercussions, I think. The, you know, the difference between watching this this week versus two years ago, you'd think that the world would not have changed enough for revisiting it to show new richness. But it does, I think. When I watched this, I thought about AI. Because Richard Attenborough is a disruptor, I suppose, to use modern language for it, right? He is a person who realised he could do something, so he's just going to do it. You know, knowing that this is going to be absolutely huge. You know, there's a line in this about, you know, archaeologists being out of a job now. And all it made me think of was AI. There's a brilliant Tom Scott video about what AI means for programmers, because you can just type into, you know, one of the GPT, chat GPT, that's what yeah, it's called. Yeah. You know, if you tell that thing, hey, please write me some code that will do X, Y, Z, it will do it. There will be mistakes in the code, but there will be mistakes in the code if a programmer codes it. So going through and fixing those mistakes... It's just quicker. Before stand-up, I was a translator, and the industry of translation is already changing drastically because of the advent of things like Google Translate. There's one company in Wales where you are no longer paid to translate. You're just paid to proofread machine translations, which sounds so so depressing. Oh, God. The job is now a thousand times more unpleasant, but they expect you to produce much more work because proofreading is quicker than translating from scratch, but it is also far less pleasant. And especially when you watch a film, you know, where famously they considered using stop motion for the dinosaurs and then turned that down when they realised how effective CGI could be. You know, we are in a film where lots of people are about to lose their jobs in very specific niches. I mean, that that line you quoted where it's like, archaeologists are going to be out of a job, Spielberg wrote that into the script because he had a conversation with Phil Tippett, who is the special effects guy who specialises in um, stop motion stuff. He like directed one of my favourite movies last year, Mad God, which is all stop motion. He had that exact conversation when they were talking about introducing CGI. And, you know, Steven Spielberg was like, oh, you're going to be out of a job. And Phil Tippett said, don't you mean extinct? And then he put that into the script. Oh, <laughs> Wow. Oh, that's brilliant. Yeah, so there is this lining up of what's happening in the real world in film and how this speaks to the... Because that's the thing, right, is the conversation about AI is not new. There have always been new technologies that create new opportunities, but also make redundant certain earlier roles but is it redundant or do we lose something when we lose those roles you know i don't suppose 
the invention of the combine harvester is too upsetting. I don't think we think the world is a worse place now that people are not harvesting by hand, necessarily. But people do like stop motion. Stop motion is lovely and charming. And although CGI is a really, really useful tool that does things that stop motion can't, I don't think anyone wants to live in a world where there is no stop motion. And so we have this sort of tension between wanting to preserve old stuff and wanting to push forward. And that's exactly what's at stake here. Do we bring back the dinosaurs? My wife, Eleanor, is a lecturer in environmental conservation, and she plays the footage of all of the scientists at dinner to her students because it is genuinely a good way of illustrating the debate in conservation on as technology improves and we are able to bring back certain species that had already died out, should we? And that's a big debate. That's a big conversation. There are not easy answers to that. Yeah. I always think Eleanor just sounds like such a good teacher. (laughs) (laughs) She's amazing. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that whole thing, also just the framing of that, it's such a kind of satirical self-satirizing I guess American blockbuster concept because obviously this whole thing is based around a theme park which is something that was clearly close to Michael Crichton's heart because it's also literally what he did with Westworld which is a theme park story but it's kind of about this like criticism of dangerous commercial ventures very obviously but also the film itself is marketed by selling toys that have the same corny Jurassic Park branding you see in the movie because you literally have scenes where like they're crashing around gift shops full of Jurassic Park lunchboxes and stuff and it's like I was a kid in the 90s I remember seeing the Jurassic Park lunchboxes so it's like you're managing to do this amazing in-film branding that doesn't feel like product placement because it's not like a Coca-Cola can it's literally the thing that's in the film and you're watching the film being like it's actually very stupid to have a Jurassic Park this is a bad idea but also I can go and buy a lunchbox for my nine-year-old sort of thing. Yeah, I think the design of the logo is incredible. What a powerful thing for this film, that image. And the font as well, you know, that yes. sort of... Oh, my Cause it, God. Because like, it's like they're kind of doing this thing where you've got this amazing scientific innovation and then you've got the ride that sort of does the exposition, which is like turning that obviously into a spectacle. And then the rest of it is like there's not really any material attempt to make this into a serious scientific enterprise like it is definitely just a safari park where you're like going and gawking at stuff yeah in a way i think this conversation's become more accessible with the advent of the internet because i feel like people can talk with more fluency about the limitations of uber as a business model versus how people would have been talking about emerging technologies and industries you know, in in the early 90s. And, you know, we know that Uber was invented by people with no background or expertise in taxis. They just worked out that that was an industry they could insert themselves into. And so, you know, this Richard Attenborough, I'm, I'm right, aren't I, that he isn't someone with a background in theme parks. This isn't his latest theme park enterprise. Isn't he like a toy guy? I think that's right. Yeah. And I think it's amazing because there's something about the aesthetic of order and the threat of chaos 
that inspires real foreboding, I think. You know, it's a strange comparison, but it, early in this film, I feel like I do at times in the film Midsummer, where it all looks nice so far, but we know that violence is around the corner. Driving the cars on the rail through the the big entrance... It's it's just it all looks so right. There's um there's a scene in Jurassic World that obviously echoes this, where you know they go through a, and it, and it, and to me it doesn't work because you know in in Jurassic World they've just designed it to look like a really impressive film, whereas here it feels like there's real attention to detail to make it look like real world theme parks. You f- this feels like Disneyland. It feels convincing. I just checked and he is a theme park guy because there is that sequence where he talks about having a motorised flea circus as a child. Oh, yes, you're right. We both misremembered this slightly, but yeah, which absolutely tracks. He is like kind of in the grand tradition of like American hucksters. Yeah. Yeah, that's me projecting then in that case. I suppose because I wanted to see the the tech bro disruptor in him. This is all old school. Shall we talk about special effects? Yes. This movie, as we said, kind of famously, it's like this early kind of mashup of the physical animatronic stuff and CGI, which obviously works incredibly well, even though the CGI technology is like decades before what we're currently used to. But the big famous one is the big T-Rex animatronic. And it's just kind of funny to like read about that. And it's like exactly the same situation Spielberg had in Jaws like 15, 20 years ago which is that you've got this great animatronic which ends up looking fantastic on film but was an absolute bitch to work with because like you've got all this fake rain going into a robot that's just malfunctioning all the time but yeah like the dinosaurs in this look so good and look so much better it's just the quintessential example of why it's better to have a combination of in-person stuff and cg stuff yeah, there's uh, a video that, I think it's IGN, uh, their Cinefix YouTube strand, where they, uh, and it's just a list of things you didn't know about Jurassic Park, but but there's an amazing section in it where they talk about adding rain, you know, the rain was added quite late in the day as a creative decision, but it meant that these dinosaurs were not designed to get wet, suddenly they're getting wet and you have to cope with that. So the T-Rex sequence, it's amazing seeing the behind the scenes because as the T-Rex model starts absorbing water, because it's mostly made of foam, it gets heavier. <laughs> uh, and that sort of makes it much harder. You know, all its movements have been calibrated around the weight of the thing when it's dry. But what ends up happening is the way it goes wrong is that becoming too heavy makes it shudder. So it just looks like it's shivering in the cold. And obviously there's not a shot of it shivering in the film, but even in the behind the scenes, the model is so good, you still just think, yeah, that's a really cold T-Rex. It's amazing, that model. It also just seems essential that the rain needs to be there. Like, it just, there needs to be rain in Jurassic Park, but also it's like, when you're filming in the dark, it's good to have rain because it's a reflective surface. Like, that's the reason why so many movies have nighttime scenes that are rainy. So it's like, probably should have predicted that one in advance. Yeah, yeah. And it does feel so important because you want it to be... You want it to be as uncomfortable as possible. There's so much goo in this film. That's something yes, I'd forgotten. Yes, that's... Uh, I mean, kids love goo. Yeah. <laughs> Just people getting vomited on or mud everywhere or pe- people falling down in mud. It's crucial to the sensory experience. Yes. 
so I think the discomfort of goo, the disgustingness of it. Just there's there's the bit where Lex is uh, sneezed on by one of the herbivore dinosaurs, oh <laughs> and it's so disgusting. And she just sort of stands there, shell shocked. And as a as a viewer, you just desperately want her to wipe her face, just wipe her mouth. There's bits and also, on her when mouth. the scientists are like putting their hands in the big poo pile. Ah, oh, yeah. And it's like a kind of direct reflection of earlier when Sam Neill is complaining about not wanting kids because they're smelly and they poop and stuff. And Laura mm. Dern's like, that's fine. That's such a good point. I love that. Yeah, I can't take credit for that one because it's from the same article about reproduction. So uh, go read that. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, God, good point. Thanks, professional film writer. <laughs> I, I actually, I want to talk a little bit about that moment, you know, that even late in the day, that bit where they're sleeping in the tree and they see the the dinosaurs. Oh, it's so good. What's amazing about this is, at no point in the film, you know, we are always inspired by the characters to look through their eyes and see the wonder in this. At no point does anyone go, do you know what? I hate dinosaurs now. <laughs> like, <laughs> even when their lives are at risk... You see those dinosaurs and you go, oh my god, those are so cool, though. And I think that is such an important part of this film. You know, there are real moments of just sitting with the wonder of the dinosaurs. There's the bit with the injured Triceratops, where Sam Neill is sort of lying on it, being lifted by the breathing of the beast. Again, that feels like a really Spielberg thing to me, just to sort of go, wow. Yeah, it's like an animal movie. I think also it's like the mark of a good man versus nature movie, unless it's kind of just intentionally straight up horror. The mark of a good version of that is kind of understanding the beauty of nature, obviously, because like there is nothing pleasant about the scenes where they're driving around in those stupid little Jurassic Park branded cars and you see these like gigantic electric fences. Like, you know, that is unpleasant and stupid and fake. But when you get to witness the dinosaurs in their natural habitat, it's really cool and fun, you know? And also, like, the music is a huge component of that. John Williams, obviously our greatest film composer, the music in this is very sentimental. Like, the main themes are either instilling this kind of sense of awe and excitement, or it's sort of childlike wonder. And obviously there's parts of the film where the music's scary and dramatic, but I honestly, like, listen to the main theme from this and I tear up because the music is so good. And... Just the combination of that and the visuals where they're trying to make something look really impressive and big or really cute is such incredible filmmaking. And also when I was reading up on the music, he composed it in a month. Like I just Whoa. don't <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just like what? <laughs> incredible. I mean, film composers do work really fast. This is something Morgan and I kind of talked about on the Lord of the Rings episodes because the Lord of the Rings music obviously is famously amazing and it took unusually long to compose. It's an extremely sophisticated, extensive, like, symphonic cycle. So it's there's a lot more of it in terms of instrumentation and just, like, pure volume and length than most films. It was, like, two years of solid work. But most film composers are just making a ton of movies each year. And even though... John Williams is not quite in that position. He clearly was like a professional who could turn out a masterpiece in a month. And I'm just like, how do they do it? <laughs> I guess one final thing I have to say on a technical level is there's a good article in the No Film School blog that's kind of about the cinematography. The cinematographer on this was Dean Cundy. Um, he's still around. 
and he's worked on various movies by Spielberg and John Carpenter and Robert Zemeckis. Like he did Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which is obviously a really impressive work. Have you seen that, Steph? No, I haven't. Oh, you'd fucking love Roger Rabbit. Great movie. Hilarious. Have you done it on the podcast? I feel like we have. I think we have. Makes sense. But it's a kind of combo of live action and cartoons. But the cinematography on this is all about illustrating the scale of what you're looking at, which is something you're maybe not always consciously thinking about, but it's just this show of just how incredibly skilled Spielberg is at just understanding where to put the camera and how to move it because first of all the aspect ratio of the movie even though it's like a big epic usually for a lot of big epics you're used to seeing um kind of like a long thin horizontal like letterboxed framing Mm. but instead the aspect ratio is quite tall so you can see a wide shot of how tall like a brachiosaurus is or whatever yeah And also there's loads of scenes where you see kind of the size of stuff compared to stuff. So in the very introductory sequence, you see this thing of all these humans like towering over a cute little dinosaur hatching out of an egg, showing Mm. the scale. But then the rest of the movie is this series of escalating shots framing the size of the T-Rex's eye compared to a child or Mm. the T-Rex entering a place where no animal of that size should be, like going into a building and showing how it's like crashing around inside a human-sized building. So there's all these different framing devices that are just making you subconsciously think, that's really big and it shouldn't be here. (laughs) Mm. Mm. Oh, that's very good. Yeah. I want to recommend the You Are Good podcast episode on this. I haven't referenced it because it's not really about behind-the-scenes facts or anything. But I've, I feel like it really informed the way that I thought about this film because it, you know, it's a sort of feelings podcast where they talk about what a film means to you and what it means sort of in the grander scheme of things philosophically and stuff. So there's great stuff in that. Okay. So I think we're kind of in the wrap-up zone. Was there anything else you'd like to kind of talk about? Um, little moments. I really want to talk about... Dennis Nedry spraying the spray can. So he's given this fake shaving foam can into which he can hide the embryos. That's how he's going to smuggle it out, supposedly. But it's been designed in such a way that it will spray shaving foam so that if someone in an airport tests it. And I just think, as a moment, I really love it. You can feel that shaving foam. I think the sound design on it is so good. And obviously the same level of sound design is applied to everything. But when it's something as commonplace as, as shaving foam, just that noise as it as it comes out, I think is really lovely. And I think, you know, that scaled up is why all of this film works. But I also think it's really funny when he wipes it on the pie of the table next to him. <laughs> um, so I guess finally we should kind of talk about what happened when this film came out. Because obviously it's like this colossal hit. Yeah. And I kind of think of it as like the archetypal example of an amazing commercial brilliant film that's like mainstream and really good where all of the sequels are just garbage. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I think the sequels cuz I do know people who do really like the Jurassic World movies. None of them think they're better than Jurassic Park. None of them even think they're as good as Jurassic Park. But I know people who can watch them and go, "Yeah, I had a fun time at that film." Because to me, what that says is people love dinosaurs. Yes. And you can get away with really making a bad film if it's got a lot of dinosaurs in it. And I feel like the dinosaurs deserve better. (laughs) Yeah. I have a friend who 
when trying to work out why they enjoy something that on the surface is bad, a question they ask themselves is, what are the pleasures of this film? Oh, yeah. I think that's good. And I think one of the major pleasures of Jurassic Park is dinosaurs, exclamation mark. And that pleasure continues in, I'm, I'm assuming, all of the films. But there are other pleasures in this film that I imagine are not present in the Chris Pratt incarnation of this franchise. Yeah. I mean, basically now, at present, there are six movies. And it's a long time since I've seen the original sequels. There was The Lost World, which is also directed by Spielberg. And then there's Jurassic Park 3 in 2001, which was by Joe Johnston. And both of those were, like, not well-reviewed. And then they rebooted the franchise kind of in the modern era in 2015 with Jurassic World by Colin Trevorrow, which is just a really distasteful film, basically. I mean, on a kind of action level, it's just sort of very generic to a lot of other films that are kind of out at the moment. Yeah. It's kind of the opposite of The Force Awakens, which is a movie that we both love. (laughs) Mm. In that both of those movies are obviously like capitalizing on nostalgia for a classic blockbuster and are kind of remixing a lot of familiar themes, but Jurassic World doesn't understand how to make a good film. And the way it's remixing those themes is regressive and kind of conservative and unpleasant. Yeah. So I don't love The Force Awakens as much as you do, I think. Oh, well, yeah, you're more of um, you're more of a Last Jedi person. I love The Last Jedi. <laughs> it's a similar thing where I think that the Star Wars prequels had pleasures that even though those films, there's a lot wrong with those films. I prefer the pleasures of the prequel films to The Force Awakens because the first the force awakens feels like a very steady hand on the mm-hmm. tiller producing a film that isn't going to go wrong the way that the prequels do but they also don't go brilliantly right the way the prequels sometimes can as well however i do think that there was a feeling in the culture that star wars had gone off the boil that there hadn't been truly brilliant star wars since the 80s and i do think the force awakens did a very good job of sort of fixing that at least and you don't get The Last Jedi without The Force Awakens. Yeah. To make a film that goes outside the lines and does something innovative and strange, maybe you do need to kind of get a really solid structure in place first. And maybe that's the thing with this Jurassic Park film, is on the surface of it, and maybe Terminator is like this as well, it looks like Jurassic Park and Terminator 2. They're so good that you think, oh, this could run and run. This is just a pattern we can repeat but then every film that has come out since has sort of suggested that maybe that's not true yeah i mean the thing with the jurassic world movies is i haven't seen the third one but the third one is kind of infamous among film critics and just film people in general because in addition to like obviously just being like a bad blockbuster apparently it's like extremely incompetent on a lot of levels because i remember seeing a lot of clips being like the editing in this literally is so bad that there's characters kind of moving around in the same room and they're in the wrong place and this sort of thing. Yeah. Like, it's it's just a fiasco. But those films are kind of lacking Spielberg's sense of wonder to a certain extent. Because, like, I remember when I watched Jurassic World, there was this brief scene where you see a bunch of kids playing with, like, these cute little herbivore dinosaurs, like, riding around having fun with them. And it's like, if the movie was literally a bunch of people having fun at Jurassic World it would be better than the movie they made, which is this Mm. huge disaster film. And like all of the new ones are kind of escalating where it's like the world's being taken over by dinosaurs and like they're all flying around killing people like Godzilla. And it's like, 
you have not earned this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's it. It, it. There's... The wonder of it is a big part of the pleasure as well, and that and that and it's very easy to forget to include that. To a certain extent, this is a wish-fulfillment film. If you're watching this as a child, you love the idea of running around having an exciting time on this island. And I think you like the idea of having a father like Sam Neill, who is exact, you know, he will keep you alive and comfortable and safe, or as much as is possible. However, he's also not really a dad. Like, he doesn't want kids. He's grumpy and belligerent. He's So he's sort of a wish-fulfillment dad, I think. Yeah. He's, he's not as uncool as your dad. but And he, he's like, you know, he's got like, he's outdoorsy and educational. Yeah, he is. Like, that's completely right. He is, you want him to be your dad. <laughs> so, so yeah, I, th- I think there's, I think you want to spend time with all of these people. You want to spend time with the cool mathematician. <laughs> you know, Laura Dern would clearly be such good company at a dinner. Oh God, Laura Dern, that's actually literally just like how I would describe Laura Dern. <laughs> Truly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's sort of interesting to have, you know, I recently watched Alien. That's another film that has like a really famous and beloved star in Sigourney Weaver doing a kind of feat of clay performance. But I think Laura Dern is a like more of an everyman, I suppose. You know, she's just a dork who loves things. <laughs> yes. And she's got a very distinctive outfit, which I like. I can't believe I forgot to mention the costumes, <gasps> but like yeah. we should wrap up now and kind of tease our next episode. But um, the costumes in this are very well chosen because they're very outdoorsy, obviously, and practical. And yeah. they're kind of playing in some of them are like, there's this one character who's this really explicit sort of old school safari guy with a pith helmet, which is kind of so fitting. <laughs> and then you've got like the two main archaeologist characters who are very outdoorsy but like in a fun way and Laura Dern just looks amazing which is why this film's costumes are so much better than the costumes in the in the new films but then also it creates this really fun contrast with Jeff Goldblum's character because he's wearing like a fucking black leather jacket because he thinks he's so (laughs) cool and it's like actually that's a very bad thing to be wearing (laughs) yeah but yeah I'm not sure what order these episodes are going to be released in, uh, but we're going to be alternating between Stefan and my other guest host, Claire Biddles. And we will obviously also, as I said, be doing some um, Patreon-only ones occasionally with Morgan. Claire and I are going to be doing the classic Eyes Wide Shut, and we will also be doing the newish Timothy Chalamet film, Bones and All, which I've not watched yet, but I've heard is great. And Steph and I, I think our next episode is going to be on The Exorcist. Yeah. Very excited. I've never seen it. Yeah, I chose this because I love horror, obviously, and it is a classic we've not covered. And Stefan has recently had his eyes opened to the wonder of horror. So I wanted to show him like one of the really great beloved horror films. I'm very excited about it. I loved horror as a teen and as a kid. So yeah, the world of grown-up scary horror is exciting to explore. So as always, you can find show notes for this at overinvestedpodcast.com. Uh, you can find our Patreon at Overinvested Podcast. You can find us on Instagram at Overinvested Podcast and on Tumblr at Overinvested Podcast. You can find me on Letterboxd and Tumblr at Hello Taylor and potentially on Twitter at Hello underscore Taylor. But as always, that's quite shaky. And uh, Stefan, where can we find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter. I am Stalin with a U, S-T-A-L-U-N. Wonderful. And I uh, I look forward to recording more episodes with you and re-watching The Exorcist soon. 
And yeah, listeners, thanks for tuning in. I hope you come in and return for some more of our new guest host experiments. See you in the next one. Bye-bye.